Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start off by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even for more, more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, the official tra- training program handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. If you'd like to join the Alpo, membership begins at $22 a year. For more information, you can find us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now episode 160. And we're kicking off our historic observatory series with one of my favorite observatories, Griffith Observatory. Enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook, and I'm very excited today. Uh, We are starting off, kicking off our series of historic observatories, and I'm really excited because it's my hometown observatory, Griffith Observatory, where I've been many times in my life, and we're lucky to have the director of uh, Griffith Observatory, Dr. Ed Krupp, with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks an awful lot, and and delighted that uh, this is at least in part a home observatory for you. Oh, it is. Yes, it's. I've been there many 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 date nights. I spent at the observatory. Made me feel smart. I think. I don't know. <laughs> why do you? Before we get into it, why don't you give a little, everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Well, I'm an astronomer. Uh, I uh, went to grad school at UCLA undergraduate Pomona College, and my advisor in grad school was Dr. George O. Abel. Uh, expert on clusters of galaxies and uh, and other things like uh, planetary nebula, and, and really the author of the very first modern textbook on astronomy for college uh, students. Uh, thanks to George A. Bell, who propelled me constantly with decisions I didn't want to make, I became a, a planetarium lecturer at Griffith Observatory in 1970. I was still in grad school. And then uh, in 1972, when I finished up, I really didn't have uh, any particular option for any other job than one that was offered as curator at Griffith Observatory. Uh, and so I thought, well, I'll stay here for a couple of years and, and then uh, move along. 
uh, became the acting director for Griffith Observatory in 1974, and so been the director since then. So you're going on 50 years as a director of the observatory. Yeah, I, I failed at my original plan. <laughs> was to get out of town but uh <laughs> yeah and that seems like a pretty secure job because in all the years of the observatory i think there's only been four directors yeah uh there, dr dinsmore alter was the first director uh and really established a, a lot of the the boundary conditions and implementation of the real character of the place uh and he worked hand in hand with dr clarence clemenshaw uh, who then became the the director when Alter retired? That was in the the sixties, and then in uh, the early seventies, Dr. Bill Kaufman, who was <laughs> a, a relativity uh, astronomer, and he was the director here for a few years. Right, right, right. Now, but your actual passion in astronomy is archaeoastronomy, isn't it? Yeah, that, that came about uh, also through a series of accidents. My my work, of course, with George A. Bell was in observational cosmology and clusters of clusters of galaxies. But uh, after I got out of grad school, and it really was when I was first working as curator here, I realized, starting up in September, that the following year I would have a paid vacation. Uh, and as a grad student, I had no idea what that even meant, you, you know, that you'd, you'd You'd be off for two weeks. Uh, and so I decided I needed to do something astronomical a year from that time. And there were a couple of false starts and some funny bits. But eventually, the, the way it played out is that I decided to go have a look at the prehistoric stone circles in the British Isles. Uh, at that time, people knew about Stonehenge. You know, you'd mm -hmm. hear about that. But people didn't know that there were 900 stone rings in Britain and, and that those were the only ones that were left. Uh, that, that there had been far more. Oh so I thought I'd go and have a look at those. Clearly, there were people who had done some work on this, Alexander Tom being the primary uh, agent of that work. And and so that is what uh, got me off moving in a different direction. And since that time, have really gone all over the world, uh, just everywhere, to both document, examine, research astronomical elements of culture, wherever they might be, uh, being propelled in part by going to places uh, that nobody else was looking at, as well as the places that everybody was looking at. That's fascinating. Huh. So is that what triggered your interest in uh, archaeoastronomy? Yeah, it really was. I think uh, that, you know, most, if you sort of threw a fishing line out in that time now you'd you'd have no trouble coming up with Stonehenge on the hook. I mean, there mm -hmm. Gerald Hawkins had written uh, at least one book already, and that had turned into a television program. So it was in the air. People kind of knew about that, but there really wasn't much more than that going on. And the idea of uh, there being more things to look at than Stonehenge really caught my fancy. And that was an accident that that occurred. I mm -hmm. was. I was uh, you know, a book collector and I was getting catalogs from Blackwell's in England and I'm paging through the latest catalog and I come across this name, Tom, T-H-O-M, Alexander, and then it says megalithic lunar observatories. And I'm thinking, I know what megalithic means, I know what lunar means, and I know what observatories means, but I don't know how those three fit together <laughs> like this. And so then I sent away for the book and uh, the book came. Uh, and I was really kind of astonished. I was astonished by the comprehensive and 
really large body of work that he had undertaken, field work, surveying accurately these sites, and then his interpretations, his astronomical interpretations of them. Many of Tom's ideas ha have not withstood the, the test of time, but certainly his his recognition of, of certain elements of these and, and this enormous body of work to document uh, is, is still uh, profoundly important. So it was that that sort of conundrum. How can this be that maybe think I ought to go look at these things? Interesting. They're basically observatories before observatories. Well, in, in fact, they aren't. Oh, okay. <laughs> and in fact, the, here, the, the, the quick and, you know, after having done five books on ancient prehistoric astronomy and hundreds of articles and dozens of research papers, the bottom line is most places that have astronomical alignments built into them are not observatories and were not intended to be observatories. They are something else. They are places where astronomy is applied to some other aspect of culture. And what that's, that's actually far more important. That's telling you that the sky is so important. It's being embedded in these things that have to do with politics and religion and economics and sociology and kinship groups and everything else. And if you think about it even now, if, if you went out to, um, well, you just even count, you count all the observatories in the world, and then you count all of everything else in the world, there aren't many observatories. Mm -hmm. And in antiquity, it would have been the same. You don't need many observatories. Uh, and so most of these things don't, don't duplicate the observational institution. In fact, most of the astronomy is way simpler than that. All you need is a place to stand and a place to look and you're in business. But these stone circles involve moving big, heavy stones in place and laying them out in a way uh, th those are those are places of, of public assembly. They're places of public ritual. Okay. They're places that are probably associated with burial and sacred uh, land. Uh, but they are part of the heart of the way the community looks at itself. And it looks at itself in terms of the bond between earth and sky. Uh, we kind of forget the sky's half the environment, as you well know, mm -hmm. uh, just thinking of how, what the general response is, and especially because we blind ourselves with artificial lighting. But in fact, to our ancestors, it was the whole kit. The earth and the sky were part of the whole deal. And, and they were paying attention to how it works. And because how it works primarily is seasonal, not exclusively, but primarily seasonal. And seasonal makes the difference for survival. You have to understand what's happening when and how it is happening. And you anticipate that in order to be able to move forward in time uh, and, and deal with the, the things that happen as the seasons change and as, as climate conditions or whatever might wind up varying from year to year. This is fascinating. I could see a whole other podcast. You and I sitting down and talking about this subject. This is amazing. Uh, let's just jump into sure. Griffith Observatory, though. Yeah. Uh, give us uh, a little bit of history, where how it began, that type of thing. Who Griffith yeah, uh, is? Yeah, Griffith Observatory is the gift of Colonel Griffith J. Griffith, who was uh, uh, an, an entrepreneur, a man of means in uh, Los Angeles in the late 19th century. He was he immigrated as a boy from Wales, uh, was adopted by an American family, grew up and then began to make his way in his fortune. Moving west, he got involved as a journalist and and then in mining and cattle ranching and such. And eventually made a fortune and settled down in Los Angeles. And he was interested in a lot of things. Uh, astronomy, it turns out, was one of them. But he, he had broad interests. And 
there is an epiphanal moment for Griffith uh, that relates directly to the observatory because he had the opportunity to go up to Mount Wilson. At the time, the 60-inch reflector was the largest telescope in the world, and he had the connections to look through the 60-inch telescope on Mount Wilson. Now, it's not something the average person would do, uh, but he, he got to do that. And he is quoted as saying, if all mankind could look through that telescope, it would change the world. And of course, all mankind couldn't look through that right. telescope. So Griffith got this idea of changing the world. And so that meant he wanted to build a telescope or an observatory through which everybody could look. And that meant a public observatory. We kind of take this notion for granted today, but, but back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, this was novel. Public science hadn't really been invented mm -hmm. that, at that time. And uh, Griffith left, uh, obviously, he left Griffith Park, this huge sort of wilderness park in the middle of Los Angeles, uh, to the city, gave that to the city. But, but then in his will, he left money for the construction of this public observatory. And he was very specific about the things that ought to be in it. And, and so he, he talked about the telescope. He consulted with uh, Mount Wilson and, and uh, the, the people that were up there at the time and all, also uh, uh, over at Caltech and such. And so he was he was influenced by them, and those ideas in turn were translated into material that he left in his will, along with the money, to say, build it like this. Uh, his son, Van Griffith, then uh, became uh, responsible for helping to execute the wishes of his father, and his father died in 1919, and in 1935, Griffith Observatory, May 14th, opened its front doors uh, for the first time to the public, very much in the spirit that Colonel Griffith had originally laid out in, in terms of what ought to be there. The, the one interesting um, deviation from that is that when Griffith wrote his will, he had the sense that there needed to be some kind of motion picture theater in there. He, he could only imagine the way that you would do some sort of presentation with motion pictures. That's the, That was the technology that existed. And even that was fairly crude at the time. Uh, so he, he had a kind of a vague notion of that. Well, between 1919 and 1935, Zeiss invented the planetarium projector. Yeah. And, and the whole team, in the course of going through the design, they, you know, they paid attention to what's going on. And they said, yep, we should have a planetarium in this facility as well. And so when the observatory opened in 1935, it was, in fact, uh, the third planetarium in, in North America, the first uh, west of the Mississippi, the first on the Pacific wow. Rim. Wow. That, I remember going there as a child and just, just no, not, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, so I had yeah. no idea what the night sky looked like. Yeah. But going to that observatory and... You know, seeing the planetarium shows that things took place, it blew my mind. And that, I think, even motivated me more to become an amateur astronomer. Well, there you go. That is the function of Griffith Observatory, and we count you as a success. I And I, I give you the credit, too, for that. <laughs> I really do. Now, other than the, the kickoff of the observatory in 1935, what are some of the things that have progressed along the way? Yeah, well, the, the, they follow in a in a curious way. Uh, along with just the history of, of planetaria really around the world. Uh, people have got this new invention. Uh, this is, in fact, this this coming up year is the 100th anniversary. 
uh, and they are trying to figure out what to do, how, how you put programs together. And in fact, in the beginning of, with this kind of thing, what you'd have is just what you would expect. There's a dark room. It's got a dome. There's this thing that projects stars. A person comes in and he points out the stars and lectures and he gives a lecture about what's in the night sky. Uh, and as time moved along fairly quickly, in fact, and particularly here in Los Angeles, but also in a few other places, the shift went from, at least in desire, from exposition to narration. And Dr. Alter really had a streak of showmanship in him. Hmm. And he wanted, in fact, to transport people to these celestial places, whether it's the moon or the planets or whatever. And and the planetarium, as it was constructed, didn't really have that mechanism, even though right from the beginning, as soon as you get a lecturer into a planetarium with a dome full of stars, the next thing you know, you have an auxiliary projector and there's slides going up there. And then somebody's got some more projectors and it, it just kept adding up and up and up, getting more and more complex. But But Alter had this idea of traveling through space. And, and getting to a destination like uh, the moon and, and landing there. And it took him a long time to be able to design and construct the projectors to do this. And not only that, but the artwork that had to be done. Chesley Bonestell, world-famous space artist, actually did a couple of our of our early wraparound landscapes and such. But that that was sort of the evolution of the place through that time. But the observatory was first and foremost always a place to put people eyeball to the universe. The telescope was the key thing. So you have uh, the Zeiss 12-inch refractor up on the roof, which was the primary instrument, still is. Uh, and that telescope uh, is clearly not the biggest telescope in the world. It's 12-inch refractor. Uh, but it is probably one of the most important telescopes in the world, even though it doesn't do any serious research, but more people have looked through that telescope than any telescope on the planet. Oh, I don't doubt and, it. And, and so the, it's, its impact on the general public and therefore the idea of I can connect to the sky, uh, that, that telescope uh, has it in spades. The, the telescope's interesting from another respect too, uh, and that is that it's really a twin refractor. It's mm -hmm. got a nine and a half inch Zeiss attached to it. That didn't come in the first place. It didn't originally have that nine and a half. Uh, that nine and a half inch refractor uh, was uh, owned by a private individual, uh, and uh, his his last name was Studi, uh, and he put it on top of a car, old Ford, and <laughs> drove it around uh, Los Angeles, uh, letting people uh, look through the telescope and presumably uh, catching a, a few quarters for for the privilege as well. He, he's Studi's actually famous in other realms, in, in industrial realms, but but here it's his telescope. Well, eventually, as so often happens in Southern California, these wonderful stories ultimately evolving to a divorce. And so there was a divorce and uh, the assets had to be liquidated. The telescope was going to go up for sale and Dr. Alter grabbed it uh, and uh, bought it. And so it was uh, the Zeiss 12 inch was modified to have this nine and a half. So you can have two lines of people actually going up to yeah. two instruments simultaneously or do other things uh, along with it. I should mention, by the way, just for anyone who, who really gets interested in this, uh, Dr. David Dvorkin, 
who is a retired commun- uh, curator emeritus now uh, of National Air and Space Museum. Uh, and I did a, a book that we just published just last year called Public Astronomy Los Angeles Style. And oh. it's the whole story of uh, Los Angeles public astronomy, including these elements of Griffith Observatory, Los Angeles Astronomical Society, and and other uh, uh, very primordial aspects of the place. So is is published by the observatory. And uh, in fact, the easiest way to, to get it is go to the website via the Griffith Observatory Foundation. You can order it by um, uh, on the web that way it's, or come here you know, and, and get it at the Stellar Emporium. But uh, the, the, the building continued to evolve like that very much with the same purpose that it always had. Uh, and I think that that purpose was sound in the first place. It, it is the, the principles that Griffith himself had in mind. And when we came to the time of doing the renovation and the expansion of Griffith Observatory, a $93 million project that closed us for five years, mm-hmm. um, that was, in fact, founded upon the, the basic principles that had been in play all along. You, you sort of say, OK, what are we going to do and why are we going to do it? And you better have some pretty good answers when you're spending that much public money uh, to do it. And so that that whole line of thinking still threads through what the observatory is today, even though now it's got twice as much public space, a, a whole new comprehensive and integrated exhibit program, the first since 1935, uh, transformed Samuel Ocean Planetarium uh, and a new underground uh, exhibit area, as well as an underground, uh, more conventional theater, the Leonard Nimoy Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we do other kinds of programs. So uh, it was just a dramatic transformation of the observatory completed in 2006, but all founded on the principle of the building as instrument. This is a building designed as and filled with instruments that are intended to transform visitors into observers. And, And so that's what the place is really about. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember when I used to go there a lot, you know, see, and I'd go watch a planetarium show, and, and the, the projector was there, looked like a big ant yeah. in, the, in the center of the uh, the theater. And this last summer, I went up to Oregon to visit my grandkids, and we went to uh, the Science Museum in Portland. And oh, there's yeah. A, there, there's a planetarium there, and I'd never been there before. So I got my grandkids, they were all pumped. They had no idea what a planetarium was. And they went in, and it got dark, and the youngest one looks at me and goes, Grandpa, it's really dark in here. I said, yeah, <laughs> just watch. And then like five minutes later, they said, are we flying? Yeah. <laughs> how the planetarium, and, 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 as you're flying through space, basically, yeah. they thought they were flying. No, 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 this is just a movie. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> but they, it really had an impact, impact on them, too. I really enjoyed that. But yeah, they, Just terrific. Yeah. Just, just and, and they had no big ant in the middle. I was looking at yeah. how are they projecting this stuff on the yeah. walls? It's yeah. like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Now, when the observatory was closed during that period of time, you still did public events. We did. Uh, We all were sent into exile, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, over to the other side of Griffith Park, uh, where we had constructed with modular buildings the Griffith Observatory satellite. And there were three buildings there. Two of them were essentially the the staff and office support. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them was uh, for the production of the new planetarium show and other graphics effects that we were going to need when we reopened. And then the third building was for public programming. Mm -hmm. We needed to make sure that we kept doing modest public programming because we had to retain some of these people. Everything we do at the observatory is live, whether it's the telescopes, the planetarium show, 
uh, exhibits on the on the floor. There, there's people. It's always about astronomy and people, not just astronomy. And so, to retain key staff members, most of whom are part time, uh, we, we had to keep doing something, and also to keep the morning school program going at least to a degree. Uh, and so that's what we did at the satellite for the, for those uh, the five years that we were closed. And in the course of that time, and you may remember, we had an opposition of Mars, mm-hmm. the closest opposition of Mars in 50,000 years. And, and we're out there at the Griffith Observatory satellite on the other side of Griffith Park thinking, this thing is getting a lot of airplay and people are going to descend on the observatory. They're not going to be able to get to the hill. They're going to try, but right. you know they they can't get there. Uh, it's a construction site, and uh, and we need to be ready for them. We wound up showing Mars at that opposition to more people through a telescope than any place else on Earth, even though we didn't even have an observatory. Yeah, I was there. In fact, Tony Cook, oh, who rendered telescope, he contacted me during that oh. time, and I came and gave three or four lectures about oh, planetary observing <laughs> during that time. I had a ball. It was a lot of fun, but I couldn't ma- imagine the amount of people we had. Hundreds of telescopes set up out there. It was crazy. I, I remember one guy who just drove up. He it looked like he bought a telescope at Toys R Us. He unpacked it on a piece of the lawn and assembled the thing, and he was starting to use it. We had no idea if he had a clue, but uh, right. there you go. Yeah. Uh, I am delighted to know that you were there. That's I was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Tony and I got yeah, we got along pretty well. Yeah, it was yeah. good times back then. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so tell me about the observatory. It's it's all. It's all privately funded? Now, Griffith Observatory is owned and operated by the City of Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks. And its primary budget is, in fact, part of the city budget. Uh, And and so all of us who work at the observatory are city employees. And everything that we do has to be done through the structure of the City of Los Angeles, which has its pros and its cons, like any governance Mm -hmm. has. But we are definitely a municipal institution owned and operated by the city. Griffith Observatory Foundation, which originally started out as Friends of the Observatory, Mm -hmm. uh, was was the private nonprofit 501c3. And that goes back actually to the whole business of getting the renovation going and started. I wrote the first memo for needing to do something about Griffith Observatory in 1978. And all I was anticipating then was the idea that we're probably going to need a new planetarium projector. This thing's not going to last forever. It'll probably catch fire if we don't watch (laughs) out. And so uh, I, I naively thought if I start writing a memo to hire people downtown, this will help propel the the system forward because I knew in the city things just were going to take a long time. I didn't realize they would take as long as Mm. they did, but as they proceeded, um, I I reached out for help from various places, people who'd been through this kind of thing before. Uh, the late Joe Chamberlain, who was the president at Adler Planetarium in Chicago, was very helpful with his advice. Ian McLennan, who is still a, a, a very important consultant to planetarium theaters around the world, was one of our primary consultants. And so gradually got advice from people as to how to proceed. And one of the things it became apparent that we needed to do was get a partner, uh, mm-hmm. a private uh, partner, uh, essentially philanthropically oriented. And that's where Friends of the Observatory came from. So they, in fact, were 
part of a, an extraordinarily successful public-private partnership with the city and the observatory for the renovation and the expansion, okay. not just in helping raise additional money, but also in facilitating things that it's hard for a city to do, that if they have control of certain money, they can spend it more effectively or more directly than the city can when you are trying to buy something as idiosyncratic as a new planetarium star projector. Uh, so they they became an integral part of the observatory, and they still are. And the foundation now is still the nonprofit private 501c3, and they act in very much the same capacity as always. They're a philanthropic arm of support for okay. the, the the observatory. Okay. And uh, so walk me through the observatory. A visitor who has not been there before, what are we going to see? First, it's going to be really hard to get here. Uh, and you'll see the building from all over the basin because it's visible from all over the basin. And when you work your way all the way through Griffith Park up to the hilltop, uh, you'll find that there isn't enough parking and you'll have to drive all the way back down and you'll have to park by the Greek theater and take the shuttle up or, or, or whatever. But eventually you'll get to the hilltop and be rewarded by two things. One, the spectacular view, because mm -hmm. it is all about the view. And of course, this this stunning uh, 1935 uh, Beaux Arts Greek Revival modern building, formal lawns, the Astronomers Monument with yeah. six famous astronomers sitting in front in the lawn uh, with an armillary sphere at the top of it uh, in bronze, and uh, and then uh, you could go in almost any direction because there are like seven ways to get into the building, uh, but the historic level, which is what you knew uh, in the, in the beginning uh, was always the only level at that time for the public. And the halls of science were the two halls on either side of the central rotunda where the Foucault pendulum still swings mm -hmm. and demonstrates daily that the earth is turning for which we're all grateful <laughs> uh, with uh, the Hugo Ballon murals, these, these paintings up overhead of the mythology of the sky and the sciences around you uh, all very unfashionable art in the art world, but utterly unique mm -hmm. uh, on the planet, uh, as is in fact the observatory. The, the the if you think about what is it about the observatory that's at the essence, I mean it's very straightforward. Uh, there are three things: location, location, location. Uh, it is the best piece of public observatory real estate on the planet. And you come inside, and and now there are exhibits, of course, on on both of those wings of the the building. It's all free. The building is open to the public, free to the public. The only thing that we charge for is the planetarium mm -hmm. show. And uh, but then, uh, or I should say, now uh, you can also go downstairs or enter that way from a, a different approach, uh, where you have the new underground addition. But you could go from the historic level down gravity stairway to the center of gravity where you get a choice. You can take the shortcut through the universe, which is the wormhole, to the edge <laughs> of space and the Leonard Nimoy event horizon, which is our more conventional theater. Or you can take the long way around the universe, which is the cosmic connection. And that's a timeline of the universe, but it's a timeline like no one has ever seen before. Uh, it does, in fact, in 165 feet of exhibit case that's only two feet wide. I mean, it's kind of a useless exhibit case, but it contains a ribbon of celestial jewelry, suns, moons, and stars, that's 165 undulating feet long, that starts from the Big Bang, 
where the jewelry just goes kapowy like that. And then just, you know, you walk uh, six, seven feet and uh, you're like a billion years. Uh, oh and and there are panels up above that show what the universe was doing at each of those moments. And of course, at the beginning, 13.8 billion years ago, say the first billion years, the universe was doing a lot. And so there are a lot of panels right there. Uh, but the jewelry allows you to continue on farther down. The universe keeps kind of doing what it's always been doing until it gets a little more personal. That is to us, the solar system forming. And we kind of mark that. And we kind of mark things that are really interesting to us, like the footprints that our cousins left in the volcanic ash at Laetoli, Tanzania, about 3.6 million years ago. And then right next to that is the Apollo footprint on the moon that was like yesterday. So all of that jewelry, and I mean, there are thousands and thousands of pieces, almost all of it uh, was owned and donated by one woman. And when we first opened with the exhibit, it was all hers. So all of that jewelry was hers, but she never wore it all at one time. And she gave it all to the observatory for, for this purpose. Uh, I knew that we had the jewelry all through the project. She was she was an officer, president of Friends of the Observatory, you know, been a friend of mine for years and years. So it, it just became one of those. You had to have a crisis where say, what are we going to do with the jewelry? What are we going to do with this exhibit case? Ah. We'll put the jewelry in this impossible jewelry. <laughs> and, well, and, you made it work, huh? Well, the the thing is, I I probably I I'm I probably will be uh, 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 what do they say canceled? Yes, I'll be canceled for this. But I knew when we were designing the exhibit, and Karanak, whose jewelry it was, also knew that when we put this jewelry in place, that we were guaranteed that 50% of the population would stop and look at it and would make the rest of the population stop and look at it. And then they would look at the panels and then they would see it's about the universe and they'd start talking about the universe to each other. This happens every day. If I walk out of the office, it doesn't matter what time of day, if we're open, I just walk out of the offices right there at the center of gravity to the cosmic connection. That's exactly what's going on. You have families, people, couples, whatever it is. And they're looking at the jewelry and they're talking about the universe. Nothing could be better than that. No, that sounds great. That's perfect. Exactly what the observatory is all about. So what type of equipment is up there? You talked about the refractors. Uh, we Well, we put uh, telescopes out on the lawn as well every night, again, with live demonstrators. Those are, uh, for the most part, those are 12-inch are uh, celestrons uh, and reflectors. And so we're looking at the bright objects in the sky. This is Los Angeles. And as mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to see deep sky objects much of anything. But but that's not really a, um, that, that's not a serious problem for the function of the observatory. In fact, the bright objects are the things that that first attract people's wonder and attention and that they've probably never seen. And so we're routinely showing Saturn mm -hmm. to somebody who's never seen it before. Yep. And they are transformed by that experience. Well, that's a good thing for us to be doing. Uh, we have a solar telescope, of course, that operates in the daytime, the triple beam celestat. So three beams come down from the dome on the west side of the building. One goes to an H-alpha filter, so you can see flares when they're occurring and prominences, of course, very clearly live. Uh, another beam goes to uh, a spectroscope that disperses huge dispersion of the uh, solar spectrum so that uh, you can see all the lines uh, th from 
you know, the violet to the red, and then a white light image of the sun comes mm -hmm. straight down on a screen. And if somebody doesn't tell you that's a live image of the sun you're looking at right now, you would think it's a picture. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, it, it's about, uh, you know, this big uh, uh, in size, and uh, the, it's you'll see sunspots if there are any. And of course, any one of those sunspots is about the size of the earth. And, and so our guides are explaining to people what they're looking at. And as soon as they realize that they're looking at a feature on the sun that's the size of the earth, it, it suddenly gels. Oh, wait, this is a lot bigger than I was right. thinking. That's wild. That's yeah. wild. So, so more and more people have seen the face of the sun live at Griffith Observatory on that Celestat uh, than anywhere else on the planet. Too. That's that's easily the most photographed observatory in the world, too, probably. Yeah, and uh, and we've been in so many movies, we ought to have a star on the boulevard, for God's sakes. And why don't you? Oh, that's very straightforward. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> I'm sure there's a backer out there, you know, well, listening there, to this podcast that's willing to donate a few dollars. But... There you go. It'd be, it'd be good. Uh, the uh, at, at this point, I'm still getting a lot of mileage out of complaining that we don't have a star on the boulevard, but it would be it would be fine uh, if, if we did. Uh, and frankly, we ought to have an Academy Award for the best supporting actor, you know, that, uh, you know. Uh, you should get residuals for every time someone takes a picture of the Hollywood sign because you're yeah. you're right there too. Yep. Uh, so. There, in fact, one of our outdoor terraces is called the Hollywood Sign Terrace. It's it's an ideal place uh, to have a have a look at the the sign. But you you in referencing the sign, you prompt me to recall something really kind of important uh, to to talk about the place. Um, if you want to get to Griffith Observatory's real nature, you know, what is it and what makes it the way it is? And I, I sort of mentioned a little bit of that. Uh, one of the things is, of course, it's, it's governance, it's ownership. It, a, a public observatory owned by a city isn't the only way to do this. But it does, when you do do it that way, it does create a certain sensibility. And that sensibility is actually the sensibility that Griffith himself had. That's why he wanted to give it to the city uh, as a, an entity. He was a populist himself, and th the city creates the sense, and, and people get this, that, that it's their observatory, that, that they mm -hmm. own it, that it, it does belong to them, uh, and they, they, they treat it like that. So the, the, the populist accessibility of the site is, is one part of it. Obviously, it's its location in terms of its visibility and what it reveals to people at that site. But the third thing, and this is not to be diminished, the third thing is Hollywood. We overlook Hollywood, and the very first movie that was made at Griffith Observatory, The Phantom Empire, starring Gene Autry. So this was, in fact, a science fiction Saturday matinee, 12-part Western singing cowboy mystery serial. Uh, that movie was even filmed before the observatory opened in 1935. It was in 35 they filmed, but we hadn't even gotten to opening. And, and so our relationship with Hollywood began that early. And the relationship goes back and forth uh, in the sense that Hollywood needs stuff from Griffith Observatory. The, the, the observatory's trip to the moon shows mm. influenced the Disneyland in the construction of the rocket to the moon ride and mm -hmm. how it was configured and how they did it. At the same time, Griffith Observatory in its programming has always been influenced by Hollywood's storytelling priorities and technology. So that in fact, as it has evolved over time, we have continuously taken advantage of those resources in Hollywood. So 
our current planetarium show, Signs of Life, uh, could not have been produced if we didn't have our own independent animation studio that was populated by people that worked on all of these kinds of animation oh. projects and, and CGI stuff. That they're, you know, that's how most of them make their living. They move from one project to another. Right, right. And and they were with us for, for the production of that show. And some of them before that to the um, the Centered in the Universe show. And so this this Hollywood Observatory connection just keeps going back and forth and is fundamental to the, the way the place actually works. That too is is detailed to a degree in, in the book Public Astronomy, mm-hmm. Los Angeles style. That's interesting. Yeah, there, I, there had to be some Hollywood tie in yeah. there. Now, you mentioned being a public observatory. Is there any science going uh, on? The, the the only science, in a sense, that's going on is, at this time is just the research that I do, and that's not with our telescopes. It's it's in the whole ancient astronomy yep. realm. You know, it's just something that I do in addition. Uh, but it's part of the observatory since I'm part of the observatory. But uh, the observatory has a tradition a very modest research. Uh, some of it was with variable stars. Uh, there, there's an active program of photometry with variable stars, particularly through the 50s and the 1960s. Uh, when something comes up that is particularly consequential, where we can validly make some uh, useful observations, and Halley's Comet was actually one of those times, uh, th- then we will do that. But there is not really a call for that. And as you know perfectly well, the 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 real thrust of, of modern astronomical research is in a whole different realm, which requires far more sophisticated uh, instrumentation. And of course, dark skies or outer space in, in order to do it. That's true. That's true. Um, so what are the some of the public outreach and programs you guys are currently doing? Well, the interesting one, uh, as as um, I mentioned earlier, the the morning school program, which the observatory had been doing since 1937, where where kids from around Los Angeles would come up on school buses and get out and and, and they would see a planetarium show and run around like crazy in the museum. I mean, when I was a lecturer in 1970, yeah, uh, uh, I knew there must be a better way than than that. But um, uh, and we we finally got around to a better way with uh, the school program that was created when we reopened in 2006, which was designed to California state curriculum standards and, and restricted to fifth grade students and involved multiple elements of the observatory in a structured way so that it, it actually did teachers and students some, some good, including the planetarium show. But you asked for outreach and the outreach part of that is Everything's going along just fine until I, if I'm remembering correctly, it would have been the 11th of March of Mm -hmm. 2020 Mm -hmm. when the general manager of the Department of Recreation and Parks called me and asked me if I'd heard the mayor's announcement. And I hadn't. And essentially, the mayor of Los Angeles shut down everything, shut down the city. And uh, she asked me, how fast can you close? And I said, "I, I think we can be closed by the weekend. Uh, and we were we were closed on Friday. So we're reeling from this. Oh. You know, what what land are we in right now? We, you know, no public activity, no school shows. Schools don't know what they're doing, whatever. It took us about seven months just to figure out what to do. But we then moved forward technologically and programmatically with an online school program. And the school program, from our perspective, could not be recorded. It needed to be a live 
experience, as if you were at Griffith Observatory, even if you couldn't be. So we would have our live guides, our live telescope demonstrators, what, whatever it took, creating separate modules uh, for um, uh, different parts of a, of a structured program related to the last one that we did. Uh, the we we obviously had to prototype this and and mm-hmm. uh, hit a few bumps and figure out how to do it. Uh, but it got to the point where now we are not only headed back to doing the regular in-person school program as soon as schools are are able to respond. We'll find out in April just how good they are at it. But we've been doing the online school program now for like a year and a half. And we are getting people from all over the country. Uh, and the numbers are like 120,000. Now, in person, we can't do better. Right. Hours in the day, we can't do better than 30,000 fifth graders in Los Angeles. And that's good. We'll do that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but because of the webinar technology and the switching stuff, and we've embraced all of that television technology. So it's like a broadcast, a live broadcast. And we we can, therefore, get to all those students, whether they're at home or in a classroom with a teacher, or whatever it is. And there is a, a, a sense of the real interaction. They get to ask questions and get a response back and all that. So that has been, from our perspective, very successful outreach enterprise. The other uh, corollary to that, very much related to that, is uh, that that same technology allows us to do our YouTube live broadcasts of everything from eclipses uh, to uh, mm-hmm. the close conjunctions or uh, w- whatever it may be. And at, that means that the whole world gets to benefit from yeah. that. And half the world isn't going to see a lunar eclipse. So uh, so we hear from those people, in fact, uh, in real time as as we're broadcasting uh, and they're they're putting in their comments, you know, whether they're on the other side of the planet or not, or right here in L.A., uh, if some people just choose to look, look at that. We, we keep urging people, if you're in L.A., just, you know, go on outside for a second. <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear it. Yeah, it's interesting that the devastation of the pandemic brought on some, a lot of new, like what we're talking on right now, all the new yeah. technology, and a lot of the observatories I've talked to said the same thing. They develop programs to be sustainable, and they're still using them today. Yeah. So it, it it you know for the negativity, it's given you some positives along the way. No, no question about that at all. And I think the the only reason, if if I if I were to seem reluctant to embrace that enthusiasm, it's just that the memory of the unknown still oh. remains with me. Oh yeah. But, but as we as we had some successes and move forward, you could see this was a powerful and successful move. Yeah. Very, very good. So what are the future plans for the observatory? Uh, several things are in play. Obviously, we were working very hard on this new show, which premiered uh, just last year, The uh, Signs of Life. Uh, and there are a couple of different initiatives in play right now. We are participants in a multi-institutional activity here in Los Angeles called Pacific Standard Time, the Getty Art Museum, the Getty Foundation, mm-hmm. is actually the backbone behind this thing, uh, where uh, the theme for this 2024-2025 conglomeration of institutional activities uh, is Pacific Standard Time, Art by Science by Los Angeles. And so that sounds like it ought to be in our wheelhouse as well. And we will be producing a film 
that will obviously show here, but that will make available for free to anybody that, yeah. that wants it elsewhere, uh, that is about that underlying theme. Uh, we're, we're, it, it is essentially about cosmology, and, and it's about art. So it's about cosmology and how we represent it from antiquity to now. And what is the big thing that's happened to us? And how does Los Angeles figure into that? So that's that's that film is one of the projects. Uh, we're working on a new piece of uh, monumental sculpture, a project that was as it's astronomical uh, and it's got content uh, and it's going to be. uh uh, it, it's not simple sculpture because it sits up on it's a giant massive thing that sits up in a precarious place on a on a rotating pole. Uh, so uh, it will uh, uh, be it was part of something we wanted to do in the renovation, but we didn't have the money or the time to do it. Okay. And, and so th those are, are two of the projects we're working on right now. Fantastic. It's ever changing. I love that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Krupp, is there anything else you have to share with us today? Thanks. I am grateful for the opportunity to see you. I am grateful for your efforts on behalf of the Mars opposition. Oh, yeah. and I'm delighted to know the Griffith Observatory played a role in your becoming what you are. That is just terrific. Uh, it did. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I want to thank our guest for today's episode for coming on the Observer's Notebook podcast, Dr. Edward Krupp, to talk to us about Griffith Observatory. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I also put the link in the show notes for the book, uh, Public Observatories in Los Angeles. So I ordered my copy. Why don't you get out there and order yours, too? You, we upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, Echo, Spotify, and the podcast also has its YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where you see one year's membership to the podcast. With that, I'd like to uh, thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the Alpo, is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net, or on Twitter at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>